baby in heaven. Thanks for sharing on uh, that testimony. That was lovely to hear. Um, it's good to see what God's doing in the lives of people, isn't it? The stories, God's stories in our lives. All right, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2. Um, just to put that into context a little bit, we've, we're going through the whole book. Um, I like to sometimes have a little bit of a structure to help me think about um, how all the bits fit together. Uh, the reason we're doing Titus is, is I, I guess it's a going on from uh, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14 where it was talking about how the church should work, um, how God gives gifts, how every member has a part to play in the body uh, and how God wants that all to work for the common good. And then we move to Titus, and you think, why now to Titus? Well, Titus, I suppose, looks at a little bit more detail in terms of how the body of Christ would operate. Uh, and so I like to think about the book as three chapters. That's short. Uh, the first chapter is about upholding the truth. I'll tell you why I think that in a moment. The second chapter, which is what we're looking at now, is about teaching the truth. And the third chapter, we'll go on and talk about practicing the truth. Now, you're going to read Titus and think, well, this part talks about practicing too in chapter one and in chapter two. But just as a broad structure, it's helpful. And the reason I've taken that line of thought is when uh, we started in chapter one of Titus last week with Darren, and I wasn't here at the time. Um, it says that Paul was a servant of God, in verse 1, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. This is, this is God's calling for Paul. This is what was on his mind and in his heart. It was for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So Paul's concern was for the faith of God's people and their knowledge of the truth. But you know, in this world uh, and in, in this environment, I guess, we tend to separate knowledge and what we know and life and activity, but the scripture doesn't do that. Because it goes on to say, uh, not only was his desire for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, it says that leads or accords with godliness. So always in the scriptures, we're thinking about the faith. And as part of the growing of that faith is a growing in the knowledge of the truth. And in growing in the knowledge of the truth, what happens? It leads to godliness and to holiness. And if it doesn't, then there's something wrong with the knowledge of the truth bit. And so that's why when he talked about appointing elders in chapter 1 and the leadership of the church, the leadership of the church is there to ensure that the faith grows and there's an increasing knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. And then we come to chapter 2. And here we're thinking about 
the whole business of teaching. And when we think of teaching, we also think about learning. So we're going to talk about not only the teaching, but the learning part. Um, I'm sure, and I'm, I'm not a, a professional teacher, but I'm sure one of the challenges that teachers have and in speaking with teachers, uh, it's something that um, I've, I've heard, is, is the learning part. <laughs> you can do the teaching, but there's also a response in the learning. So whenever you, whenever you think about these passages, uh, uh, these particular examples it gives here, we're thinking about, okay, what's the responsibility in terms of the teaching, but what's the implication also for us who may be learning as well? So the chapter's uh, quite simple. He starts off, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Did I say it's quite simple? The structure's quite simple. <laughs> There's a lot of detail, and we're not going to cover all the detail. But he says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's saying, as for you, Titus, because he'd just been talking about those that didn't teach according to sound doctrine. In the end of chapter 1, he was talking about those, in fact, who were disruptive. He talked, uh, uh, referred to them especially as those of the circumcision party, those that had a focus on certain um, teaching that was out of balance or was just untrue. And they were disrupting and causing trouble. Uh, and um, we have that famous line... Um, that the Cretans, which is where these people were from, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and even the Cretan told me that. <laughs> so they profess to know God, they deny him by their works. So the, these were teachers that, or, or people that were evidently teaching things that, that were not in accord with sound doctrine. So now he comes to, to Titus, he says... As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Healthy teaching. Teaching that's going to be good and profitable and helpful for the people hearing. Not just to tickle their ears, but to transform their lives, to become more like Jesus. That a teacher... The, the way the, uh, the chapter structured from there, he then talks about particular categories of people, and we'll have a look at these in a moment. So he talks about um, older men. Put up your hand if you're an older man. <laughs> uh, he talks about um, older women. I won't ask you to put up your hand if you're an older woman. <laughs> uh, he talks about younger women, younger men, uh, he mentions bond servants. Now, this is, this is not a, uh, let's say, a comprehensive categorisation necessarily, although I suppose you are an older man, or a young, older woman, younger man, younger woman, or a child. Um, but one of, the, one of the reasons he's doing this is, is specifically there, are, there were some issues, clearly, in, in the church, as there were in Corinth, and he's probably zeroing in on some of those areas. But nevertheless, there are areas that are important to us, and we can sometimes look at these and think, hmm, that, that's me. So these are categories of people, but one of the things that it does show us is that um, 
teaching needs to be tailored. We need to think about who's the recipient. Even in our relationships and the way we deal with each other and with people, we need to be conscious about where the person is. And so in talking about these things, what Paul is teaching Titus is that you don't do the same thing in the same way with everybody. I think it's in, in 1 Thessalonians, it, it talks about uh, in, in dealing with uh, the, the church in Thessalonica, Paul talks about admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak and being patient with all men. So you don't deal with everybody in exactly the same way. And so that's what Paul's going to do, or he's teaching Timothy, Titus, sorry, to do. He also taught Timothy. And then the, the chapter leads on from verse 11. It talks about the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Um, that is the theological underpinning, if you like, for all of this. Right? The reason all this works, <laughs> the reason it's even possible, is because underlying this is the grace of God and the things that the grace of God coming into our lives teaches us are the very things that we're to communicate with other people and Paul wants Titus to teach. So, let's get into this. It says, uh, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, we get stuck there. <laughs> What's the sound doctrine? Where does it come from? Where does the truth come from? Well, he was talking about the truth as it was taught by the, apostol the apostles, which became inscripturated in our New Testament, in the scriptures. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped, fully furnished for every good work. So when we're talking about doctrine and the truth, the truth as it is in Jesus, we're thinking about this book. We're thinking about the, the truth as it's revealed to us, it's the truth of God. Jesus said in his final prayer, um, well, just before Gethsemane, the Lord's Prayer in John 17, he said, sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. So that becomes the foundation. You're to teach them in that which accords with sound doctrine. How are you going to teach it? Well, you have to know it first. <laughs> Titus, you have to know it first. When the children of Israel were returning back to the land after 70 years of captivity, um, uh, for those that may know the story, uh, Zechariah and Ezra and some um, uh, Jewish people came back to Jerusalem and they went to rebuild the temple there. It had been destroyed, uh, the place of worship for God. But they also were there to rebuild the people. <laughs> and Ezra had a role to teach. 
And it's interesting the instruction that's given to Ezra in Ezra 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 10. It says that Ezra, he's the teacher. Just think about this. This is preparation for a teacher. I don't know if they teach this in teacher's training college. <laughs> Probably not. Hopefully they teach it in the Bible College of South Australia, Mandy. <laughs> Ezra had prepared his heart to study the law of the Lord, the book, the word. He had committed himself to study the law of the Lord, to do it. Ah, we missed that bit. <laughs> we study to teach. No, Ezra didn't study to teach. It says he studied to do. So to, he, he committed himself to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. This was the preparation of the teacher. This would have had to have been Titus's preparation. You have to know what you're going to teach. There's a problem, of course. We don't get to know it in an instant. There are no instant... Um, there's no instant knowledge of the scriptures. Um, I've said this before, when I became a Christian, one of the most influential inputs in my life was somebody sitting down to me, uh, with me back then, and encouraging me and helping me to learn five verses of scripture. There was a verse on assurance of salvation, uh, assurance of victory, assurance of answered prayer, assurance of forgiveness, and assurance of guidance. That transformed my life. Well, the Lord transformed my life when I encountered him. But that, that was pivotal in laying a foundation for my heart, my life, uh, not that it's been lived very perfectly along the way, but it was it was pivotal, pivotal that some of the decisions made in terms of getting into this book and learning the book um, has been life-changing and um, has gone on not only to influence my life but my home and my marriage and my children. And my wife will tell you there's plenty of issues we've had to deal with but uh, this has become foundational. I share that because um, the decisions we make now about what we're going to do with this will determine whether we're equipped in the next year, in the next five years, in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years. When you look back 20 years later, the Lord willing, well, some of us probably won't look back 20 years later, I don't know, but if you look back 20 years later and think, oh, I wish I knew the scriptures better, it's too late, isn't it? We read what we sow. So your choices are today. The, the investment that you make in spending time in this book, and if you don't know how to do that, there are people around that can help, but the, the choices you make today in investing in this will equip you to be the teachers that God wants you to be.
And as we'll see, the teaching here is not talking about just the proclamation of the scriptures like I might be doing here. It's talking about teaching in everyday life, isn't it? So let's have a look at what that looks like. Older men, right? That's some of us. <laughs> it says that we're um, to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Boy, that's a challenge, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not going to go through each of these in detail, but it's, it's, it's interesting that there's a sense in which older people are to be um, maybe a little bit more reserved. We don't always jump up and down in the same way that young people do. But it's more about um, a self-control, a self-restraint, a soundness in faith and love. So what does it mean to be self-controlled? You don't lose your temper. You don't fly off the handle. I think that's the terminology today. It's interesting that self-control is mentioned for each category here. Self-control, self-control, self-control. Now, we won't be self-controlled unless we're God-controlled. Why does it matter? There's a proverb in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28. It says this, it says, He that has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Let's hear that again. He that has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. No protection. Mm -hmm. You're vulnerable to evil. You're vulnerable to deceit and misdirection. You're not being controlled by the spirit. Older men. <laughs> Self-controlled. Older women, it says, likewise, to be reverent in behaviour. <laughs> not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Apparently, uh, that was a bit of a problem at that time. Somebody told me that out of, um, and I won't say who, but they know who it is, out of all the, the list here, she was saying, oh, there's one thing I know that I do, I'm not enslaved to much wine. <laughs> These may not be problems for you, but they may be problems for you. And he's not saying, by the way, that everybody in the congregation is going to be perfect and living in this way. He's saying, Titus, this is long term, right? We want a congregation where this is developing in the older men and this is developing in the older women. This is starting to become the character and the tone of the body of Christ. They are to be reverent, not slandering, not gossiping, not enslaved to wine or to anything else, enslaved, and then they teach what is good and train the young women 
I just want to just pause a moment to reflect on this old a bit. Um, our society, and maybe it's permeated the church a bit, is to think, well, the older people, you know, they belong in retirement homes. <laughs> Get them out of the way. They don't have very much to offer. This is not a pitch for older people, by the way. <laughs> but it is, it is an exposition of what the scripture says. And we've lost something there. I re really believe that we've lost something there. Uh, how much it's permeated us, I don't know. But this is why, personally, we need to be going back to the truth. Remember what we started off with, that the, it's, it's the knowledge of the truth which accords or leads to godliness. It's as we become immersed in this, our minds readjust, if you like. Romans 12, too, puts it this way. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a constant renewing that has to happen. We are exposed to the media, we're exposed to our workplace, we're exposed to ideas all the time that don't position older people in this way. And of course, the older people may often feel that they have nothing to offer or nothing to say or nothing to contribute. That's quite unscriptural. They do have a place. One of the verses I've been learning of recent times is in Psalm 71, 18, and it says, so even to old age and grey hairs, <laughs> or some people would be no hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. The older people are to, to be an influence for good to the coming generation. They are to proclaim to another generation, God's power. They are to proclaim to another generation, God's might, what God is doing. Not, not perfect. <laughs> but it's certainly true that as a person lives through life, or experiences life, there is a degree at which they have a wisdom that they can share, and there's a responsibility that they have to do that. And so the older men, and then it comes to the older women as well, and specifically here it talks about the older women interacting with the younger women and exercising that responsibility. Let me say something about the younger. <laughs> When I was um, in my university years, there used to be a person there who would often talk about um, being a fat Christian. Now, I don't know if it was politically correct today, but fat stood for faithful, available and teachable. A teachable person is one who learns. That's where the word disciple comes from. 
and for older people and for maybe even not so old people to teach, right, the people, the younger people or the younger in the faith have the opportunity to learn. And that becomes a heart attitude. And the scriptures are full of this. So in Proverbs chapter 10, 17, it says, He is in the way of life. No, no, that's not the one. Yes, he is in the way of life who heeds instruction, but he that refuses reproof errs. There is a sense in which right through Proverbs, it's talking about a listening and learning and hearing and responding to that which is being taught. There's a story in the Old Testament um, when uh, King Solomon had died and under King Solomon, Israel was at its peak. It was a united nation and um, Rehoboam was the son of Solomon and he had an opportunity to, to maintain the unity of that kingdom but he sought some counsel and the, the older, older people, older men who had been uh, peers of Solomon had given him some advice, some counsel on how to deal with those people in his kingdom. And the younger men also gave him some advice, some counsel. And it says um, that he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And that resulted in the division of the kingdom into the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. That's not to say that young people can't have good counsel. It's not to say that at all. But it is to say there is a sense in which in humility we need to be learners and very often uh, as the scripture outlines it we can learn from those who've had the experience and had um, made the mistakes perhaps and learnt the scriptures and we have an opportunity to learn from that, each of us. And so with the women it says, the older women are to train the younger women to teach them. What are they to teach them? Love their husbands and children. Hey, you'd think that wouldn't be a tough thing, wouldn't it? Don't women always love their husbands and children? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> of course they do, in a sense, they love their husbands and children. But, uh, you know, there are times when you sometimes almost feel like you want to throttle your children. Like, it's not always straightforward. And, of course, wives are not always easy to get along with. Husbands sometimes are problematic. But isn't this lovely? Like you think, what am I here for? I'm an older person, I've seen my children grow up, etc. What am I here for? Here is an instruction from God about the influence that you can have. And... Um, and it doesn't matter, as a, as a woman get older, whether they were married or not married or whatever, here's an influence that they can have. 
Now, you could have this influence as a younger person as well because it's the same truth. You're encouraging these younger women, in this case women who have a husband and children, but others, unmarried younger women, need encouragement as well. But in particular, they are to love their husbands and their children and then there's certain characteristics in life to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So there's a whole lot of things there. We're not going to go into all of those. But let me just say that um, there's something very home-centric about this. Now, I'm not saying here that a woman's place is in the home in the sense that there's nothing else that they can do. But what I am saying is that there is a priority on the home. And in the scriptures, there is a priority in the home. There's no question about it. The first couple, (laughs) Adam and Eve, when God brought them together, they established the first home. So the home, if you like, the family, precedes the church. It precedes the nation, the society. It precedes all else. And it's absolutely foundational. And um, what one of the things that has been taught here is that there is a priority in the home. And there are different roles. And, you know, I say that unapologetically. Today, there seems to be a sense in which for a, for a woman to have a desire to see a home established in a godly way is almost seen like, you know, second best. Because what matters more is what I'm going to do out there. Well... You have to make your own judgment on that, but God's judgment is very clear. It says, when it says that they are to be when I get the phrase to love their husband to be self-crowed pure, working at home or workers at home Some people have used the term homemakers. Unfortunately, all these terms have been maligned in some way or another. But a really good example, if you want to have a look, is go to Proverbs 31 and see the example of a godly woman. Now, her activities are not confined to the home in the sense that she she turns out to be quite an astute businesswoman, She's involved in all sorts of activities. But when you have a look at her heart, when you have a look at where those things are directed, they're directed towards the good of the home. And for a wife, for the good of a husband. My wife often shares with me that verse, and I can't remember where it comes from, but it's in Proverbs, that she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, 
that she that makes ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. In that sense, a woman is foundational in the home. And these younger women are foundational. They will influence the world (laughs) from the home. And so there's this focus on the home. It goes on to talk about the younger men. They even get a mention. (laughs) I was one of them once. Self-control. The only thing it mentions uh, about the younger men is self-control. They must have had everything else in place. (laughs) No, this this was mentioned because it's probably... uh, It's probably the biggest challenge with young men. Well, it certainly seems to have been here. And look, this is a two-edged sword. I love to see younger people's zeal and desire to get out there, and it puts me to shame. And as you get older, you you don't have that same energy or intensity. But there there needs to be a guard around it, the scripture's saying. Young men, you need to be conscious that you, <laughs> you've got all this energy and intensity and, and even abilities that God's given you, but you need, they need to be controlled. They need to be channeled. They're going to be channeled as we reflect and uh, submit ourselves to God and as we align our thinking to the Scriptures uh, and we're transformed from one day to the next, they become controlled and channeled. He doesn't want us to lose the energy. He doesn't want us to abandon the zeal. But there needs to be a control and a constraint. And of course, uh, some of the control here, especially in this society, was control around uh, the passions of the flesh and, and the sexual urges that are, are very strong. Uh, especially in the youth. And because of all these pressures and temptations, if you like, there was a special need here for urging the younger men. He started off to talk about teaching. Here he's saying a stronger word, urge the younger men. Isn't it lovely the way that the scripture doesn't shy away from the truth and the reality? and the temptations that are there, and the temptations to which we sometimes succumb. But as part of those of his children, as part of their sanctification and growth, it's saying there's something we can do to work towards that. Look, Proverbs is a wonderful book in this whole area for young men, by the way. It was written by a father for his son, And all the traps and the pitfalls, especially for young men, are there. If you haven't read it, it's a good place to start. If you're a parent and you don't read Proverbs, I'd say get started. There are lots of manuals these days on family life and raising children. You can even go to paid seminars. (laughs) There's a book in this Bible that is written specifically, specifically for this. 
So by all means, go to the seminars and do your books and things like that. But, but you neglect this at your peril. Because here we've got the wisdom of God showing the young men how they ought to live and how you can experience the blessing of a home and a family that is a joy, a joy to those in it and even a joy to those outside of it. And then it talks about bond servants. I won't dwell on this, but um, these are talking about the slaves of the day. Slavery was practised there. And um, interestingly, uh, there are certain things that the um, characteristics that seem to have become prevalent, the pilfering, uh, the, the uh, argumentativeness, etc., etc., which, by the way, we see in our workforce today. So, when you read bond servants, you know, one way to think about this and applying it is applying it to the workforce. Some people would say that, yes, I'm a slave in the workforce too. <laughs> but, you know, it's talking about uh, a, a, a submission, a willingness to be pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, showing all good faith. And the purpose, the end, just as the end in when he was talking about the young women back in chapter 5, that the word of God may not be reviled, here it says uh, that um, they may adorn the doctrine of God. They might make attractive the doctrine of God, the truth of God. Then we come to the last verses. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Like I said before, this is the theological foundation. Why is it talking about the grace of God here? Because the grace of God is what has delivered us out of darkness and put us into light, and it's grace of God that now enables us and leads us into a life that is not a life of constraint and dullness <laughs> and boring, but a, a life of fulfilment and blessing and joy. And that grace of God's appeared, bringing salvation for all people, for all kinds of people, It's not saying that everybody experiences a salvation, but it's available to all people. The grace of God that is rooted in the salvation that is brought to us by Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his own body. He died on the tree. He purchased forgiveness for us. He rose from the dead so that we might have life and as it says here, hope. So the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. He saved us from the past. He's training us, the grace is training us today to live the way we ought to live. And we also have a hope 
for the future age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who himself has redeemed us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Don't be apologetic about this, he says. When Jesus redeemed us, he didn't just redeem us to deliver us from something. He redeemed us, he brought us back out of a life of hopelessness into a life of hope, but he wants to transform us. And what's his purpose? His purpose is for us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's why right at the beginning of chapter 1, he talks about the knowledge of truth which accords or leads to godliness. Godliness is Christ-likeness. So this grace of God not only has delivered us, but now it's working in our lives. How does that work? How does that work? There's a simple secret, <laughs> an open secret in the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it tells us this. It says, which I'm going to have to look up now, that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. As we behold the glory of the Lord in the scriptures, we are transformed into the same image, into the image of Christ. It's a process that happens. So, when you look at all of these things, this list in chapter 2, and you think, these are things we need to be teaching, these are things we need to be learning, it's not going to happen without a transformation of heart. And the transformation of heart won't happen unless I behold him. And in that verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it tells us that God is responsible for the transformation. But we're responsible for the beholding. And if you neglect this book, and if you ne neglect that relationship with Jesus, and if you neglect the time to reflect and to pray and to meditate on this book, then the transforming doesn't happen. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And so these negative things that are being addressed here tend to become more prevalent. But as we respond to and reflect and submit ourselves to the Lord in his book, then he's transforming us. When we look unto Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, we become more like him. As we become more like him, we begin to practice more and more the things that are mentioned in Titus chapter 2. So, chapter 2 is about teaching and learning the truth. It's based and established, if you like, it's founded on the sound doctrine, which is the truth. It has to be in accord with this book, these scriptures. 
and it's a priority in our lives as Christians. I want to finish with something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. When Jesus was being tempted on the mount, um, he was being tempted to turn stones into bread. And he said this, he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus considered the word of God as spiritual food. He considered it more necessary even than his physical food. And that sentiment, if you like, that priority has to be a priority in our own hearts. And it has to be a priority in our own congregation, in our own uh, own church. Otherwise, as for you, teaching what accords with sound doctrine won't be possible because we won't be able to discern between the sound doctrine and the unsound doctrine. So let us just pray. Father, um, we are thankful for what we can learn from this. I pray that you would make us all to be learners, uh, to be those that are teachable, to be disciples of Jesus. And uh, we're just... uh, very conscious of our own inadequacies. We're conscious, Lord, that we're not sufficient in ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. So uh, would you just um, speak to our hearts in a way that inspires us to be looking to you more constantly and more earnestly and to be treating this word, this book, in a way that perhaps we haven't treated it before, uh, that it becomes a foundation of our thinking and our living and our families and our conversation and, and all of life. We thank you for it and we bless you for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen.